Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker. I'm a pastor and a preacher, a writer, a reviewer. Uh, I do what I can. I serve where I can. And uh, I'm also an appreciator of Charles Spurgeon. I'm part of a, a group of people who are trying to read through the sermons that he's preached either once a day so that we cover the entirety of his sermonic output, or at least the main bulk of it, in about 10 years, or for those for whom that's a bit much, just one a week. And this week we're reading from Sermon 59 through to 65 in the second volume of the new Park Street Pulpit. And our particular sermon for this week is Sermon 64, and that's called The Enchanted Ground. It was preached on Sabbath morning, the 3rd of February, 1856. And Spurgeon's text was 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 6. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. And Spurgeon's introduction on this occasion uh, gives us a couple of windows into some of his particular concerns. The first is, in his opening sentence... As the spiritual guide of the flock of God along the intricate mazes of experience, it is the duty of the gospel minister to point out every turning of the road to heaven, to speak concerning its dangers or its privileges, and to warn any whom he may suspect to be in a position peculiarly perilous. So here is Spurgeon's pastoral heart. Very often the main thrust of his sermons is either going to be holding up and holding out Christ in his finished work or stirring up the work of God's people as those who have been saved by Christ. Here, the emphasis is more on those second, and as we've said, a reflection of Spurgeon's pastoral concern that the people who are coming to Christ should be walking in Christ and with Christ, and kept from turning aside into a dangerous path, into a dangerous way. The second instructive thing here is the interest that Spurgeon has in John Bunyan. Now, Spurgeon was a, a real Bunyan fan. Here he calls him the great geographer. Uh, you might say, I thought Bunyan was a preacher and an author. Yes, he was, but his uh, best-known book, The Pilgrim's Progress, is an allegory of Christian life and experience as a journey. And the geography here is the spiritual geography through which a child of God will pass on his way to the celestial city. And the particular point on that route with which Spurgeon is here concerned is a place called the Enchanted Ground. It was a place that the shepherds had told the pilgrims to watch out for, uh, a place to beware of sleeping, for which reason we should not sleep as others do, but rather watch and be sober. And so he's using the text, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 6, he's uh, introducing it by way of this illustration or image from the Pilgrim's Progress. And his point in this sermon is to show what is meant by the state of sleep into which Christians sometimes fall. And then, secondly, to use some considerations, if possible, to wake up such as a slumbering. Thirdly, to mark the sundry or various times when the Christian is most liable to fall asleep. And finally, to conclude by giving some advice as to the mode in which you should conduct yourselves when passing over the enchanted ground and feel drowsiness weighing down your eyelids.
So here again is one of Spurgeon's very clear, very simple outlines, four points on this occasion. But you'll also see the way that he's using this image or this illustration. He's hanging it on the text and he's using it to create this uh, lively and vivid image which which is going to help sustain our attention as we work our way through this issue. So first of all, what is that state of sleep into which the Christian man may fall? And he's very quick to point out that it's not spiritual death. We are now alive in Christ and yet there's a danger that a living man may sleep and that may even look like death at times. And so, in a way that's typical for Spurgeon, what's the state of sleep into which the Christian man may fall? He's going to give us several answers just to uh, expand and adorn this idea. And his answers are that sleep is a state of insensibility. In sleep, you're subject to different illusions. Sleep is a state of inaction and it's a state of insecurity. First of all, then, sleep is a state of insensibility or a lack of awareness. You're not thinking or feeling in the way that you normally are. You wish you could feel, but you cannot feel. And Spurgeon says that sometimes you're even aware of that condition and you can become more like a formalist than a lively Christian when you feel that there is not that savour, that unction in the preaching that there used to be. Interesting. There is no difference in your minister, you know. The change is in yourself. Now, that's not invariably the case, but very often when Christians are struggling with a sense of spiritual dullness and dryness, they are very quick to blame the ministry under which they sit. And there's a need to be careful with that. We should typically, as a preacher would ask, if the whole congregation were struggling in this way, what am I doing or not doing that may be causing this? So the believer who says, I'm not getting anything out of this, needs to ask, is there something in me rather than in the ministry that is the cause of my dullness? You confess then that you are insensible, if not entirely so, too much so. You want to be awake, but you groan because you feel yourselves to be in this state of slumber. And there's a lovely note of pastoral sensitivity there. Spurgeon isn't just shooting people down because they are sleepy in a spiritual sense. He's aware that this is a grief to those who feel themselves to be sleepy. The second feature of this spiritual sleepiness is that you're subject to diverse illusions, uh, that you are uh, you are effectively dreaming and strange thoughts then will come to you which you did not have before. Uh, doubts and troubles will come in upon you that otherwise you would never have entertained for a moment. And this, he says, is a result of the fact that you're not spiritually lively and alert. The third thing, that sleep is a state of inaction. You are positively dead as to activity. Many Christians, he says, are inactive. Once it was their delight to be about some work, like instructing the young in the Sabbath school, but that's given up. Once they attended the early prayer meeting, well, if that's the case, a lot of churches are sleepy because we, we barely have prayer meetings sometimes. Once they would be hewers of wood and drawers of water, but alas, they are asleep now. 
And he asks, where are the ministers that preach? We have men that read their manuscripts and talk essays. But is that preaching these horrible, toothless homilies where we amuse an audience for 20 minutes, he says, is that preaching? Where are the men that preach their hearts out and say their souls in every sentence? He's concerned that not just in the pew, but in the pulpit, there's this lack of engagement, this lack of appetite, this lack of desire. You go to the prayer meeting and you hear one brother after another pour out the dull, monotonous prayer that he said by heart these 50 years and then go away and say, where is the spirit of prayer? Perhaps you've been in that kind of prayer meeting where as soon as somebody stands up, you can almost uh, finish what they're going to say before they've started because there's no liveliness, there's no engagement. And the fourth thing then, the man who is asleep is in a state of insecurity. You cannot ward off the blow of the enemy or strike another. Christian, if you're sleeping, you are in danger. So very, very briefly, but very colourfully, these four features of the the state of sleepiness, spiritual sleepiness into which a Christian can fall. That brings him to his second point, how to wake up the sleepy Christian. And he tells of a, a, a time he was in a sleepy congregation. And so he shouted in the middle of the sermon, fire, 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 in order to wake them from their sleep. And uh, when they asked where the fire was, he told them it was in hell for sleepy sinners. So Spurgeon is a, an earnest man. This is not a take it or leave it situation. Why should a Christian wake from slumber? First of all, because your Lord is coming. You need to be alive and alert, not just because your soul is in danger, but because your Lord himself is coming. And he who once hung quivering on Calvary will descend in glory. And you need to be found laboring, lively, working, serving when Christ comes again. A second reason why you should be waking up is because souls are being lost. Uh, Methinks that 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 is what the Christian man would say. If I have been the means of saving one soul, I will not rest until I have saved another. He's got this Uh, pressing sense and you know that it characterizes him and he thinks it should characterize you and me too that while there are people on their way to hell how can we sleep let me shout in your ears he says to the sleepy christian you are sleeping while souls are being lost sleeping while men are being damned sleeping while hell is being peopled sleeping while christ is being dishonored sleeping while the devil is grinning at your sleepy face sleeping while demons are dancing around your slumbering carcass and telling it in hell that a christian is asleep he's got this this horror that while christ is coming and while souls are dying, that we should not be up and doing. He says, I could find no difficulty finding sticks enough to beat a sleeping dog with. So while he's pastorally sensitive, he is also pastorally vigorous. This is too important for us to be careless about. And now his third question. And again, this is very insightful preaching. This is very practical preaching. When is the Christian most liable to sleep? What is it in our situation that might lull us into this kind of security in which we just drift off? First, when your temporal circumstances are all right, when things are well with you in the world. Few sleep in a storm, but many on a calm night. 
And so when life is good for us in the uh, the general sense, when uh, we've got everything that we need, when we've got a warm bed and warm clothes and good food and perhaps a, a lovely family and a safe church, that's when we drift off. Another dangerous time is when all goes well, not in temporal matters, but in spiritual matters. The distressed soul does not sleep, says Spurgeon. It's after we get into confidence and full assurance that we're in danger of slumbering. Now, he's not saying, therefore, that it's good for us to live in a constant state of doubt and concern, but rather that when there is gladness in our soul, it is easy for us to become careless with regard to our spiritual concerns. And another time, he says, is when we get near our journey's end. And therefore, he backs this up by the words of that great pilot, this great spiritual geographer, John Bunyan. It's one of the last refuges that the enemy to pilgrims has. It's a, it's a place that the older Christian who's been long in the way can easily be caught by. And he says, you, you might say, who am I to speak to those of you who are older? Well, I'm not a child when I preach. I may be a young man, but in the pulpit we stand as ambassadors of God, and God knows nothing of childhood or age. He teaches whom he wills and speaks as he pleases. So he's saying, don't, don't dismiss what I'm saying because I'm young and because I'm concerned talks about the tragedy of people who know that they've uh, got to the point in the service where they can sleep for 20 minutes while the minister drones on. But he says if the preacher uttered, uttered an odd sentiment, they might be aroused and would probably think that he'd broken the 59th commandment in making some of the congregation smile. But this sleepy preacher with his sleepy congregation never violates decorum. He stands the very minute mirror of modesty in the picture of everything that is orderly. He says it's a terrible thing for a Christian congregation to be lulled into this sense of security. Uh, worn out Christians with a worn out preacher who've got no vigor and no endeavor about them. He's, he's not pulling his punches here, is he? There's no uh, sentimentality in the wrong sense. He is tender where he needs to be careful where he thinks he should be. But here is a man who is speaking eyeball to eyeball with people and saying, you cannot afford to be a sleepy, a lazy, a careless, a thoughtless Christian. And so he comes lastly to give a little good advice to the sleeping Christian. And again, here he's uh, both explaining and applying all together. How are we going to keep awake under these circumstances, when there are so many things that would lull us into this false sense of spiritual security and uh, deliver us into this state of spiritual sleepiness, what can we do? Well, he's going to use a little bit of bunion and he's going to use his Bible. This book tells us that one of the best plans is to keep Christian company and talk about the ways of the Lord. Now, I don't know if this is something that you feel comfortable with or if you're accustomed to in the congregation to which you belong, but too often believers don't talk well and deeply and richly and fruitfully and stirringly about spiritual reality even among ourselves. 
And perhaps one of the reasons why we're so slow to preach the gospel to others is because we don't much enjoy the gospel ourselves. And so he says it's good for us as Christians to engage in real Christian fellowship. That means not just being in the same place as other Christians at the same time, but talking about the things that belong to God and his kingdom. There is no subject so likely, says Spurgeon, to keep a man awake as talking of the place where God began with him. When Christian men talk together, they won't sleep together. Hold Christian company and you will not be so likely to slumber. Notice here. Christians who isolate themselves and stand alone are very liable to lie down and sleep on the settle or the soft couch and go to sleep. But if you talk much together as they did in old time, you will find it extremely beneficial. Two Christians talking together of the ways of the Lord will go much faster to heaven than one. And when a whole church unites in speaking of the Lord's loving kindness, truly beloved, there is no way like that of keeping themselves awake. It's a little like that old illustration of the ember taken out of the fire and put off by itself, which rapidly goes cold and dark, as opposed to the one that is in the fire banked up together, where the heat is retained and the light continues to shine. So it's a dangerous thing for you or me, if we're Christians, to cut ourselves off from the opportunities we have within a healthy congregation to stir one another up to love and to good works. So if there's a prayer meeting, if there's a a Bible study, if there's a a gathering of the old or the young or the men or the women or, or, or whatever it may be, take every opportunity to participate in that. Do not isolate yourself because by keeping Christian company and speaking much of God and his ways and his works, then this is a good way for us to keep awake The danger is that too often, once we've got sleepy, we don't want to be woken up. It's too painful to be shaken out of our slumber by lively Christian fellowship. So let's go back to that if we've not got it. Let's seek it out if we've once had it. Here's a second thing. Look at interesting things and you will not sleep. And how can you be kept awake in the enchanted ground better than by holding up your saviour before your eyes? It's tragic, isn't it, how quickly we can fall asleep in church and how slow we might be to fall asleep when we're doing something that really interests us. You don't find a a football fan falling asleep during the match. You don't find somebody typically falling asleep during a a television program that's really engaged them. Their eyes are full and they're stimulated. How much more then ought we to be stimulated when our eyes are full of the Lord Jesus Christ? How can you sleep, says Spurgeon, at the foot of his cross? Keep your eye upon the crucified Lord and remember what he has done for you. Always have your heart full of his saving labours. Then again, just a line here. So he's throwing things out quickly, uh, probably conscious that time is passing. I would advise you to let the wind blow on you. Let the breath of the Holy Spirit continually fan your temples and you will not sleep. Um, I, uh, I'm a, a fan with Spurgeon of an open window in the, in the chapel. Uh, the, uh, the, old, the old statement that he used to make, the second most important thing to grace is oxygen. Well, you know that when the the wind is blowing, 
then uh, it's hard to get to sleep when you're uh, feeling that uh, stimulation from the wind. Well, he says, seek to live daily under the influence of the Holy Ghost. Derive all your strength from him and you will not slumber. Most of us don't like to be sitting in a draft, but if it's the draft of the Holy Spirit, then it will keep us from sleepiness. Lastly, he says, labour to impress yourself with a deep sense of the value of the place to which you are going. If you remember that you're going to heaven, you will not sleep on the road. If you think that hell is behind you and the devil pursuing you, I am sure that you will not be inclined to sleep. Would the manslayer sleep if the avenger of blood were behind him and the city of refuge before him? And Christian, will you sleep while the pearly gates are open and the songs of angels waiting for you to join them and a crown decorated with delight to be worn upon your brow? So he's saying, look back at what you've come from and look ahead at what you're going to. Does that not stir you up? If you were going off on holiday and you had to walk to get to some wonderful place, would you would you be always dawdling? Would you be turning aside to the left hand or to the right? Would you give yourself an extra few hours sleep each night? No, you want to be at the best place. And so until you get there, you're eager to keep moving. You can't brook delays. So it is with the child of God. Think about where you are going. Think about what dangers lie around you and press on without falling into a state of sleepiness. So this is intense and urgent and earnest stuff for our souls. It's It's been a, a very a practical discourse. Our lives have been painted, our dangers have been described, our hearts have been stirred. It's on one level very simple, very straightforward Again, sometimes you you read these Spurgeon sermons and you say, well, it's lively, it's it's colourful, it's engaging, but it's very ordinary truth. Yes, it is, but with the power of the Holy Spirit with it, it grips the soul. And it's a good example to us of just this uh, straightforward and simple and substantial pastoral ministry. You might say, didn't you tell us that Spurgeon is often concerned for two great things, the work of Christ held up and held out for sinners, and then the work that sinners do for the Christ whom they have trusted. Where is Spurgeon going to go in his last paragraph? Well, where he often does. There are some of you that I must dismiss because I find nothing in the text for you. It is said, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. Now, this is a very striking way of applying the word of God to an unbeliever. He's saying, in effect, this isn't yours. These aren't your warnings. These aren't your comforts. These aren't your blessings. And when he says, I'm going to dismiss you, he doesn't actually do that. What he's saying is that the things that I have spoken about are not yet for you. And he uses that as a way to warn them that hell is a positive flame, a fire for the body and for the soul. And if you sleep now the sleep not of carelessness, but of spiritual death, then you will come at last into this terrible judgment. And so he's saying that you face a far more dangerous sleep 
at this time. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with what he calls a simple, naked faith. To come to him to be saved and then to walk in this newness of life. It's a a very simple, again, not an aside, but a, a striking way of pressing home these truths that this is only for you once you have that life which is in Christ Jesus. Now, in the written version of this sermon, you will find an interesting PS, and with this we conclude. Spurgeon says at the end of this text, it is frequently objected that the preacher is censorious, that is, that he's quick to criticise others. He is not desirous of defending himself from the charge, he says. He is confident that many are conscious that his charges are true. And if true, Christian love requires us to warn those who err. Nor will candid men condemn the minister who is bold enough to point out the faults of the church in the age, even when all classes are moved to anger by his faithful rebukes and pour on his head the full vials of their wrath. If this be vile, we purpose to be viler still. So we have made note, as we've worked through this sermon, of the bluntness and the straightforwardness of Spurgeon, not entirely lacking in tenderness, but there is no pulling of the punches. And he's very conscious of that himself. Now, how do you think a congregation today might respond to such a sermon? Well, some people will be angry. Who does this man think he is to speak to us like this? Some people will say, well, this is just the, the this is a, a sermon that's typical of your kind of theology. Some might be deeply offended that they've been charged in this way. And Spurgeon is saying, if that's what we face when we are faithful in our rebukes, then he has already experienced it. And this is the way to go. Now, he's got a balanced ministry. This is not the only kind of sermon he preaches. But here's a lovely example, though a painful one, of spiritual faithfulness, of pastoral integrity. Where there is sin, where there is carelessness, where there is indecision, where there is this spiritual sleepiness among the people of God, it is good and proper for the minister of the gospel to point out the faults of the church and of the age. Remember how he began his sermon. As the spiritual guide of the flock of God along the intricate mazes of experience, it is the duty of the gospel minister to point out every turning of the road to heaven, to speak concerning its dangers or its privileges, and to warn any whom he may suspect to be in a position peculiarly perilous. And Spurgeon has pointed the finger at us in this sermon. Spurgeon has told us to look well to our own hearts, to consider well the state of our own souls, to beware of the dangers of spiritual sleepiness, and to wake up and to serve and to labour toward heaven while we have the opportunity. And if we have ears to hear, then we should hear. Thank you for listening. I'm Jeremy Walker, and From the Heart of Spurgeon is a podcast from Media Gratii. 
for more resources like this, including a biographical film of Spurgeon's life and labours, visit mediagratii.org.